If you're a hardworking professional struggling to reach financial freedom, I would like to help you out as much as I can in a free 15-minute strategy call. When I started investing in real estate in 2009, there were no resources for high-paid W-2 workers like myself. I wish someone who knew what to do and had the same pedigree as me told me what to do at the starting line. As I wind down the year, as a limited time holiday gift, I would like to connect with you to give you a free strategy session. Open to new members to the Hui Do Pipeline Club. Book here at simplepassivecashflow.com slash talk. This is a story about a dude named Lane. He moved to the mainland and bought one place to stay. And then one day he went and tried to rent them out. And then he became one real investor man. Hey, Simple Passive Cashflow listeners. Uh, a lot of you guys have submitted questions for me in those private Facebook groups and through email. I put the blast out recently that I was going to have a, a real-life lawyer instead of just playing lawyer on the podcast, which is totally legal. But I've, like I said, it's, you know, I'm not a lawyer, and you guys need to get your own professional advice, whether from a CPA or a lawyer. But I got Scott Smith online. How's it going, Scott? Hey, Lane. What's up, man? Yeah, no, I'm actually a bona fide lawyer. Have been for a number of years now. I've been a real estate investor for eight plus years. Um, I've done asset protection strictly for real estate investors for over four years now. I'm personally invested in about 10 different states in every asset class. And I protect um, over $1.2 billion in assets for my clients. So I'm excited to, to be here today to share with you guys just an open book on any questions that you have um, about any information. One thing I believe in more than anything else is that that information should be freely distributed, you know, and that I don't hide anything from from you or from anybody else about how things work or how they need to work. Um, people hire me, I think, mainly because I know how to put it all together, but I can explain to you exactly like, here's all the nuts and bolts of what to do and why it's the best solution. I think that's really what separates, you know, good attorneys from great attorneys that I hire even myself is that a good attorney can tell you like what to do. A really great attorney can tell you why that's the optimal solution that you should be shooting for more than anything else. All right. So we'll kind of hit these like via lightning round style. And uh, the first question here, I think I get asked this all the time from beginning investors and I kind of call it cart before the horse question and, you know, the question that people ask when they're trying to look for an excuse not to do anything. But it's, um, you know, at what point do, do I, you know, do I need a LLC or entity to get started to hold my rental property? Um, what we look at in terms of LLCs, the only thing that LLCs do for you is protect you from lawsuits. So for everything else in your life, that's going to be like a simple slip and fall, you know, on your property or something like that. That's why you have insurance, right? Insurance is going to cover the 80% of the bad things that are going to happen to you. The problem with insurance though is, is two major things. And this is from my experience of being an, a litigator suing major insurance companies is that insurance companies are inherently in the business of uh, collecting premiums and denying coverage. Um, so when you have a major accident, like grandma falls to the staircase, insurance isn't going to step in and cover you there. You know, it's a really big claim and they're going to say it was gross negligence and they're not going to cover it. So then you end up with a lawsuit against you. Now you might not care about the lawsuit if you don't care about losing the asset. But if you care about losing the asset, you have to have it inside of an LLC structure to, to help protect it as much as you can. So an LLC structure is really what we think about is it's an insurance against a lawsuit. 
and lawsuits and, and it can happen from a, a variety of different ways um, that insurance doesn't cover, right? So it won't cover you in any type of business transactions that you're doing. So if you're, you have a uh, breach of contract issue with a deal that you went into or somebody sues you for fraud because of you know, some communications or simple misunderstanding from emails that happens all the time, it's actually the basis of most fraud claims is actually just emails back and forth. Or there's a catastrophic injury of some sort, like a, a bad car accident that exceeded the limits of liability of your insurance policy for your car, right? Then all of a sudden, now they start pursuing your other assets. I've actually had a client um, that was before as a client of mine who thought his insurance coverage was enough that lost over $3 million from a lawsuit. That if you had just a simple LLC structure, he would have been protected. So at the end of the day, what you really have to weigh is saying, you know, am I worried about losing this asset? If I am, I probably should protect it. In most cases, the benchmark that I'm using for that is $50,000. If you have less than $50,000, you're probably not a target for a lawsuit. And that includes your cash, your stocks, and your real estate, any other investments that you have. As a culmination of that, we look at it and say, you need to have at least enough pot of gold to incentivize an attorney to come after you. Because at the end of the day, that's what lawsuits are. It's people trying to steal your money. And if you don't have enough money for them to come after, they don't come after you, right? So, uh, look for that as your benchmark. But anything above that, I, I think it always makes sense to have an asset holding company and because it's really cheap to do um, and it offers you really high levels of protection. Yeah, and then a different way of looking at it is, you know, like most most of these lawsuits are settled in settlement anyway. So if you want to want to look like you're going to be able to uh, not pay, you know, they're going to look with the assets in the LLC and the attorney might advise his client, hey, this guy's not worth anything or he's just going to hide in an LLC, may not be worth it. And hey, maybe we can just go after the insurance money there. Yeah, there's a number of different ways of disincentivizing it, right? But let's say even if there wasn't insurance it could go after, or maybe they intentionally don't want to go after insurance. Because sometimes as a litigation attorney, what we would do is we would make the claim such that we would know the insurance company would deny coverage because we know that that person would, it would be an easier lawsuit because insurance companies have really deep pockets and we would know we wanted to go for a big settlement. And the way settlements work is that it's 100% of a... Um, of a risk management, right? That's the reason why you're settling. You don't want to take the huge risk of a final judgment from a jury for millions of dollars. Instead, I'd rather pay $50,000 today, right? If you have your company structure set up, what it looks like is, oh, I'm going to get paid out very little. Even if I win, I don't get very much, right? So that means that the settlement figure actually drops way down. So instead of settling for $50,000, maybe you're able to settle for five because you're not as much at risk. Now that's a very different scenario if you own everything in your personal name, which is the worst possible way you can own things because then it's unlimited risk. They can take everything in my life that I own and then they can harm my credit score so it's hard for me to do business. For most people, that's not a level of risk that they're willing to accept to go through, you know, a full trial and have that be the outcome. So then they're willing to pay out a bunch of money in settlement. So even a company structure can protect you completely outright, right? But at the very minimum, what it's going to do is lower any a probability of them trying to come after you at all because it doesn't look like there's as much money. And even if they do, now your settlement figures have dropped down. So every step along the way, having a company structure is saving you money in the event that um, anything, you know, potentially goes wrong, which is, you know, really outside of our control. Yeah. And you mentioned it earlier, the insurance company denying these large claims. I think we had it on a past podcast 
where um, you know, there were companies out there that were kind of delegating the responsibility. You know, they were kind of self-insuring the smaller claims, but the bigger claims, they're kind of contracting that out. I don't know if that's legal or not, but that's just definitely a very fishy to me. And, you know, that's just a bad situation for the client to be in. So be aware that that goes on out there. Um, oh, for yeah, sure. Yeah, this is a kind of a, a, the newbie question. And, you know, they always ask, take this long. Well, I want to be able to write stuff off. And an LLC is a, like, like Scott says, it's a legal structure. It's not has nothing really to do with taxes or how you're writing stuff off. Yeah, for a, t- a typical LLC, that's right. You know, like it's going to be treated as like a single member or a married couple. It's LLCs are treated as what's called disregarded. So that means that all of the income is actually reported onto the Schedule E of your personal return anyway, and you're able to take all of the deductions on it, whether you have an LLC in place or not. A huge tax saving tip for people though is that what you could do is establish your LLC and have it treated as an S corporation. And because it's treated as an S corporation, you then can become an employee of your own S corporation and then thereby avoid the self-employment tax that you would be charged if it was a disregarded entity. Um, That saves you about 15% per year um, in taxes to be able to do it that way. Um, We regularly set that up for people as part of like our two company structure. We'll have one company that holds all of the assets. Um, We call that an asset holding company. Um, What that does is it owns everything but doesn't do anything. And then a completely separate LLC that acts as an operating company, which does everything but doesn't own anything. And then, you know, there's some financial maneuvering that happens through this, right? That's pretty simple. But at the end of the day, a lot of times that people will choose to get paid out you know, a property manager, quote unquote, property management fee as an employee of their operating company, which is an S corporation, and they save themselves that 15% um, on all the taxes they would have. Other than the 27 weeks of curated content for the passive investor, the new mastermind will offer biweekly power calls with the following format. First week of every month, we will dial in on being a direct investor or Simple passive cash flow 1.0, I call it, which is getting your first rental, negotiating, sourcing, operation, etc. Second week of every month, we will discuss holistic wealth building topics or what I call simple passive cash flow 2.0 plus, which is holistic wealth management, syndications, private placements, tax, legal, lifestyle design, etc. Get a sense of this format by checking out the Guide to Taxes video at simplepassivecashflow.com backslash tax. I'll be honest, some things I can't say to the general public because it's too personal and it's not to say bad things about others. Unless you're in the mastermind. One rule we have is what happens in the mastermind stays in the mastermind. To get in, go to simplepassivecashflow.com backslash journey. Don't be left out and join the day. If you've been waiting on the sidelines, this is your moment and not to be taken by an institutionalized education program. All right, next question comes from another Huey Do Pipeline Club member and they're asking about trusts. They kind of see it similar to LLCs. Does it provide any asset protection? Uh, do they need to put rentals inside an LLC and then place the LLC into a trust? You know, where does the land trust come into this too? Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. So trusts, um, typically a revocable trust provide no protection. There's a general rule you should think of when you hear trust is that no protection. And there's one exception to that with the Delaware statutory trust that I'll touch on here in a second, which is how, you know, California investors can have asset protection, anonymity, and avoid the $800 per year in franchise taxes. Um, but typically thinking with the way we should think about trust is that they don't provide any protection unless they're combined with an LLC structure. 
So you always would want to have an LLC that would then own the trust. And by that, what you're able to do is create, you know, anonymity or the property ownership. Um, you also have a pass-through tax treatment of the entire structure, so it doesn't complicate any of your operations or taxation. And you you end up also with a, a system that you can use like a series LLC in combination with land trusts, where you could have an infinitely scalable company that also remains anonymous no matter how big you get. Um, it also keeps everything streamlined through one EIN number and having one bank account, one company structure, but provides compartmentalization of every asset. Mm-hmm. So the the trusts are absolutely essential and the fact that they provide anonymity because what they do is if anybody's looking to sue you, they don't think that you own anything. And so if they don't think that you own anything, they're going to think that you're probably not worth suing, right? You don't sue people that don't own anything. The most they would see is that at least with the way we do it, um, is that you had a property at one point in the chain of title for the title records and then it got transferred to a trust. But if you do that correctly in the way that we do it, we make that look like it was a sale to the trust um, to be used for an investment purpose, to be chopped up among like a number of investors. So it looks like it's a bona fide transfer. So if like there's a litigation attorney that's turning through that, they're like, okay, well, this looks like this is a real sale for this other person, you know, that they use as like a credit sponsor or, you know, some other type of strategy like that. And now it's being sold to a trust to be chopped up among investors. And the most I could do is guess that they did actually, they do actually still own it. Even if they do guess, right? And they guess right that you put, move this into a land trust to create anonymity. What they're then stonewalled with is against this other fact that now the asset is compartmentalized as part of, you know, your LLC or your series LLC structure that they can only go after that one asset and they can't go after any of the other assets. So that's additional bad news. And this becomes incredibly important for litigation because the more you can make people get, have to make guesses about whether they want to move forward or not, the less likely they are to move forward because the riskier all the investment becomes in the lawsuit itself because lawsuits are a business just like anything else. And then every time they turn around, they're getting more bad news about how little they can get and how difficult it's going to be to fight through this. And so what does that do? It makes them want to drop the lawsuit or settle for a really low money amount. All right. So is that living trusts or irrevocable trusts, same thing? Yeah. So um, there's only actually two types of trusts that actually exist in the world, right? There's a thousand different names that they use for it, but there's really only two types, essentially. There's revocable trust and irrevocable trust. So you'll see irrevocable trust and sometimes for really high net worth individuals that are doing it for estate planning and tax purposes. But for most everybody else, the only thing you're going to be using is revocable trust. Revocable trusts are like land trusts that I was just talking about now that we use to create anonymity. Uh, and hold uh, pieces of property. And you'll also have things that you people use for estate planning that's called a living trust, which is another type of revocable trust that you use to say who gets what when you die. For that, that living trust is a revocable trust during your life and then it becomes irrevocable on your death, right? And then that's how, it be, that's how that structure is, is set up. Um, and then there's no negative tax consequences on your death for that. But that's the way that that typically plays out. But you really need both. I mean, you need land trust to hold your properties. That way people um, don't find out what you own. And then at the very top of the pyramid, you need a living trust, which actually ultimately owns all of your companies, owns everything in your life, everything tears up to that one place. So that way, you know, your family, your friends, or whoever's going to inherit when you die, you know, has a really easy way of controlling 
you know, all of your assets and most importantly, and make sure that all of your assets avoid a probate process, which is a court process that, um, if you don't avoid it, it can mean your assets get caught up into a legal proceeding where your insurance might not be getting paid, mortgages might not be getting paid, rents might not be collected, and your assets go into limbo. The only way to guarantee that you don't have that kind of you know, catastrophic legal proceeding happening is to be able to, uh, to use a living trust structure as part of your estate plan. Yeah, I've, I've heard it got even as nasty as, you know, say a family owns like an apartment building they can't even take the cash flow from the building to do capital expenditures. Oh yeah. Well, it's legal limbo, right? Nobody has control of the property and you're, and you're not talking that these aren't like huge investments to get these things off your plate. These are really one time setup costs if you do them correctly and then they're done for the rest of your life. So it's a, it's a nice thing to do one to keep your life streamlined, right? And a way that's going to keep things simple for you and done correctly. Um, I think that's one reason people don't take action normally is because they think it's going to cause them a bunch of extra work. Me and my company, we've solved that problem for real estate investors and coming up into a way that allows people to do that with their, including with their estate plan that you can set up once and then never have to update it again. So it can never go obsolete with the way that we run it, where most everybody else that you turn to, if, if you have like a traditional um, estate plan or if you, if any of your listeners do, I bet what people are doing is that they have their living trust and then they have all of their assets titled into the name of their living trust because that's how most estate planning attorneys do it. And it's stupid to do it that way because that means that every single time you acquire an asset, you have to retitle it into the name of the living trust every single time. And nobody keeps that up to date. So the much better way to do it is to have a living trust set up that owns your series LLC. And then your series LLC holds all of your assets, no matter where you live or where, where the assets are located, your series LLC would then um, compartmentalize and hold every single asset of it. So now they're totally protected. And then all the assets go in and out at the series LLC level and below throughout your life. And then the living trust is never obsolete because the living trust only divides up the series LLC structure as a company structure to say so much goes to my wife, so much goes to my kids, et cetera. Um, and then you can never, you never go obsolete and you're fully protected the whole time. You only have one system that you have to worry about, um, which is the same system that your attorney and your active business is actually doing. You don't have these, you know, uh, lingering, you know, legal loose ends you have to keep track of. So in that arrangement, is it the trust that's giving you the asset protection or is it the series LLC that's giving you the asset protection? Yeah. Trusts don't provide any asset protection. They only provide anonymity. You have to combine the trust with the series LLC to create the asset protection. We normally think about asset protection. What we're thinking about is people suing us and being able to take the asset itself, right? The only thing that provides that is an LLC structure. But typically with LLCs, the part that makes them vulnerable on their own is that then I can see like how many LLCs Lane owns, right? And I can then know, okay, well, if Lane isn't operating all of the, these LLCs correctly, um, then I might be able to attack them with like piercing the corporate veil, other types of attacks, right? That'll come into it, which remember it's a gamble, right? So if I think that he has a ton of assets in these LLCs that I can know where all those LLCs are, it might be worth the gamble to try to attack you. But if I mask things behind a trust structure, I have no information to be able to operate on to know whether it's a good idea to attack or not. And I'm most likely not going to do anything because it looks like it's a bad gamble or because at the very minimum, what I'm going to think is, do I want to go after this guy or do I want to go after the next case that came across my desk to be able to know that that's the person I want to sue? And I don't do this work anymore, but I used to. So, but this is actually the way that litigation attorneys really think. 
right? Because they're going to their clients and they're saying, hey, we can get it this much. I mean, they're just kind of thinking from a business perspective, is it worth you my time? Well, they get paid on commission, Lane. Remember, they get a third of whatever they win. A lot of times these clients don't actually own, have anything. So this guy is actually thinking about what are the easy wins to make sure that I get a payday off of it? Because most clients don't have twenty-five dollars to $50,000 to plop down on your desk to be able to make a lawsuit happen, right? Most attorneys, litigation attorneys are saying, I'll take a third of whatever we can get. Well, guess what? They still have to pay, you know, their offices, their secretaries, their paralegals, all of those people, right? So they're looking for easy, consistent wins, which means that you just go after the people that are most vulnerable. All you have to do to be almost 100% protected as being a real estate investor is just make yourself not as vulnerable as the next guy. You know, it's like you're with some friends and you're in the woods and there's a bear chasing you. You don't have to be the fast guy. You just don't have to be the slowest to be able to make it out. Right. It'd be amazing. It's amazing how many people don't do this stuff. It's like, you know, just put a club on your car. It won't get broken unless it's a 96 Honda and you're screwed. <laughs> yeah. Right. So this, uh, the LLC series LLC is kind of a way that, you know, a lot of my listeners and investors are from California and man, well, sorry guys. That just kind of sucks to live out there. Cause you gotta pay that $800 uh, LLC tax or whatever that is. The series LLC maybe kind of tell us a little bit how that works and um, is it really necessary and what are kind of some of the downsides to that? Yeah. So you wouldn't want to do it with a California investor. Well, the series LLC has been around for about 20 years. It's never been challenged uh, in those 20 years directly to say that it's not a valid structure in any state, right? It's been in thousands of lawsuits. Nobody's tried to even come after it, right? Um, To be able to create the quote unquote case law. Some people are looking for with it. But for California investors, um, what what you should be using is what's called a Delaware statutory trust. And unlike all of the other trusts that we've been talking about here that are revocable trusts, this trust is created by statute under Delaware law to have asset protection as well as anonymity. What makes it amazing for California investors is because just like the series LLC, the Delaware Statutory Trust or DST is able to uh, create individual child series that act like they're their own independent company. So you're able to create one a trust filing in Delaware that can then create individual child series A, child series B, child series C, et cetera. Each one of these child series is able to hold an individual piece of property. So if there's a lawsuit against property A, they can't come after B, C, D, et cetera, right? This is just like a series LLC concept, except it's a trust. Why is that amazingly important for California investors? It's because the Franchise Tax Board only has an $800 per year tax on LLCs does not apply to trust. So you can get all of the asset protection, the scalability, the ease of having one bank account, all of the streamlining of your taxes, all while avoiding all of the franchise taxes that come up and having all of the asset protection. And you just know, you know from Delaware laws that these, these, these company structures are the strongest that you can possibly create because that's the bedrock of what Delaware's created. And normally these DST structures are reserved uh, for people that are trying to do complex 1031 exchanges and, and buying, you know, parking garages and these huge assets, right? Like Dwight K out in California uses DSTs for all of those purposes. So typically that's what everybody's thinking of them for. But common real estate investors in California should be using these because it just helps you avoid all of this tax avoidance that comes up that it makes a lot of sense, you know, to, to pay for something that's going to be more expensive. You know, series LLCs with anonymity you're able to create for usually around, you know, three to $4,000, $5,000, somewhere in that range. DSTs are in the five to $7,000 range, depending on what's going on with those. 
Um, but with both of those structures, if you set them up correctly, the cost savings of what you should be able to recuperate over year two and year three should pay to be able to have the, the, the more advanced structure put in place. So in that arrangement, you're putting the, the properties directly in the DST? Yeah, you could put them directly in the DST as a trust. Or what you could do is hold each individual property in its own land trust and have each one of those individual land trusts owned by the child series. So whether it's a series LLC or a DST, how it typically works is that you'll close on the property in your personal name to be able to get the best financing rates and take advantage of all of the conforming loans for your first 10 that you'll end up getting, right? And then what you do is you would contact, contact your attorney or contact us. And then we, what we do is we would take that property A and we would transfer it into Land Trust A. Land Trust A is owned by Child Series A. Child Series A is then owned by the parent company, whether that's going to be a Series LLC or a Delaware Statutory Trust. And then when the property B happens, it's the same thing. Property B gets transferred into Land Trust B, owned by Child Series B. Child Series B is owned by the parent. Because we transfer the property into a trust structure, the Land Trust, it avoids the due on sale clause, which everybody is worried about and accomplishes anonymity. And the reason that it avoids the due on sales clause is because it's a transfer to a trust for an estate planning purpose. This is all part of your estate plan and part of your asset protection um, that comes through that. So the banks will see that it's transferred, but they won't review it. Um, as opposed to transferring things directly to an LLC, banks automatically assume that's a business purpose because it's just transferred to an LLC directly. And now there's a whole uh, due on sale clause violation that you might get letters from the bank. And you know, let's kind of address that deal on sale clause. I mean, most times the thing that will trigger that is when the insurance company kind of tells the bank that it's changed. But I mean, from what I've talked to, I haven't, I haven't really heard of any cases where the bank is actually called the, the note due. No, as long as you're making payments, the bank's not going to call the note due regardless, right? But if you transfer it to a trust, the bank won't even notify because they'll, that'll look like it because they just don't review transfers to a trust as a blanket statement from the back end of the banks that I've reviewed with the legal counsel. And so what we do with insurance is that we'll transfer the property into a land trust. The property is located at 123 Main Street. We'll transfer it into the 123 Main Street Trust, for example. We leave the existing insurance in place. And then what we do is add that land trust to the existing insurance policy as an additional insured. So you don't even have to go through the whole process of getting a whole new insurance policy put in place to be able to protect your property. It's usually like a 10-minute phone call to your agent and you're done. Right. At the end of the day, I think the, um, you know, if you're talking about risk here, risk of due on sale versus risk of uh, lawsuit, I would rather protect against lawsuit. Yeah. yeah. What I'm saying is you don't have to compromise on either one. There's a way that you can avoid all of it if you do it right. Next question here, from what I can tell, uh, drop and swaps don't seem to be pursued. Would be curious of the thoughts on doing so in a multi-member LLC going to tick and closing on some partners, 10, 1031. Uh, yeah, I'm not really a 1031 expert on those issues. I mean, to really get into the nitty gritty on that. I have a number of people that, that work on those and advise on what you can do with those. So far though, with the clients that I've worked on that have done some drop and swaps into it, that there haven't been any issues. And the question, is there an advantage of forming an LLC in a specific state versus the state in which I live? Yeah, absolutely. So you always want to form an LLC to be your asset holding company in a state like Delaware, Texas, Nevada, or Wyoming. Those are known to be the strongest states in the country for asset protection, meaning if I sue you know, Lane, can I get to his LLC ownership, right? And actually be able to take the assets of his LLC because I sued him. 
Delaware, Texas, Nevada, Wyoming, strong essay, absolutely not, right? So if, the, if you're in a lawsuit, say in Kentucky, what Kentucky does is then says, who's the owner of this piece of property, right? When eventually what they're going to get to is say, oh, it's this Texas, you know, series LLC or Delaware or Nevada series LLC or, or a DST, right? And then they're going to look back at the home state laws to say, what are the protections afforded to that company structure according to the home state's laws that created it, right? This is the whole reason why Delaware LLCs became so popular to use everywhere is because of this methodology of the way the court systems work. If it didn't work like that, nobody would have been doing these Delaware LLCs and and that would have never turned into a hot topic, right? So it really does matter where you form uh, to be your asset holding company. Now, remember though, what we talked about before is that you always need at least two companies. You need one company that holds all of your assets. That's going to be your series LLC or for California investors using the Delaware statutory trust. And by the way, too, with both of those pieces, the information online is really bad. You have to come to my website, the royallegalsolutions.com website to actually see how those company structures relate to real estate investors because they get used by so many different things. You'll get really confused if you just start randomly reading about it online. But anyway, I digress to saying you need at least one company that's going to be your asset holding company. Then you need a separate company that's going to be your operating company. Your operating company needs to be formed in the state where you're actually conducting the business, like collecting rents, for example, or negotiating contracts, because it's directly doing business in that state. It has to have the registration there. We don't really care about that LLC because all it's doing is conducting business as a shell company. It doesn't own anything. So I don't really care about its asset protection um, that's coming through because of that. I really only care about the fact that I'm able to, to do business behind the LLC. So that way, if something goes wrong in that business, they can't sue me directly. My credit score stays protected because my LLC acts as a barrier for me there. If you're doing um, commercial deals like buying apartment complexes, it becomes really important because what you can do then is take your shell LLC, get all of the commercial financing in place to close, say, on that commercial deal that you have through your shell LLC. After the time of closing, the next day, we're then able to take that asset and then transfer it into the anonymous asset holding company for you, right? To make sure that property stays protected and it's isolated inside of this one massive company that then owns all of your stuff. So the questions, you know, the, the question actually has, you know, kind of two parts to it um, in that sense. So always asset holding company through Delaware, Texas, Nevada, Wyoming. Um, your operating company would always need to be established in the state where it's actually going to be doing the business of hiring contractors, collecting grants, you know, actually physically closing on commercial properties, et cetera. So when I was holding single family homes, I had like that Delaware, that holding company, that parent company, I called it. And then I own other LLCs under it. Um, in the state that the properties were held. I had my Atlanta ones and my Atlanta one, but the other one, just because I only had four, I had four properties in Alabama and one in Indianapolis. I registered that one in Alabama and I stuck the Indianapolis one in there too, just to, I don't know, it was convenient, lower cost. Better yeah. than nothing is what I figure. It's definitely better than nothing, right? And that's what I mean that there's like different degrees of how clean you can make these systems, right? What I'm suggesting um, that everybody follow is a system that says you only have one asset. Each asset and every asset needs to be compartmentalized. That's really expensive to do if you have to have one LLC, new LLC for every asset because that's like $1,000 plus plus annual maintenance for each individual property that you own. The advantages of using a series structure with like Delaware Statutory Trust 
or a series LLC is that you um, get to scale for free. It's free to create each individual child series that gives you all of the compartmentalization just as if you had a separate LLC for every asset. One key point also to remember for California investors here is that if you had, say, Indianapolis LLC and an Alabama LLC and you're actually domiciled in California, a lot of people think that they don't actually owe the franchise taxes for that. But you should really contact your CPA about that because the way the Franchise Tax Board rules are actually crafted actually state that if you own an LLC anywhere in the United States and it conducts business anywhere in the United States, you you owe $800 per year, even if it never touches California, merely because you're a California resident. So it could mean the situation that what you'd be accruing in that sense is what would be like a ticking time bomb in terms of a tax uh, issue. Because if you were ever audited, what they would end up doing is reassessing you the $800 per year per LLC for every year that it was established and you never paid taxes on it. So if you're in that situation right now, the best thing to do is to form a DST, transfer over all of your assets, wind down those LLCs. And so that way, if you're ever audited, you know, they look at what you have right now, but they, you know, hopefully don't go back, you know, through your past, which typically they don't because they're only worried about what's existing today. Yeah. And next question here, what is the best wording in operating agreements about distribution? So when defendants try to collect money, they can't get anything until the trustee or manager decides to distribute it out. Yeah, you would just, you would have to word that in, right? I mean, you'd probably want an attorney to look at that exact language of what it would be. You know, like I can't blanketly give everybody legal advice <laughs> here, like on the show, right? But you would just word it in, in whatever way. There, there's not like, attorneys don't have like special magic on words, right? It's just make sure that whatever you're going to say in there is going to be very clear that XYZ person is the manager. They have sole control to be able to elect when distributions are going to be made. If you're going to have partners that are part of an LLC or a DST, what you should typically do is not have, like me and Uline, let's say that we want to go into an investment together and we're going to say, okay, we're going to buy this um, awesome piece of property in San Antonio, Texas, and we're going to form an LLC called Worldwide Investments LLC that owns that piece of property. Me and you wouldn't then go into Worldwide Investments directly. We would both have our individual LLCs, our asset holding companies own Worldwide Investments LLC. And the reason that we do that is because then if in any one of our individual lives, we get sued with something, our asset holding company, Worldwide Investments LLC, can still make distributions to our LLCs individually without it hitting our names. So that way, if somebody sues us, they still can't get to the assets of our asset holding company, right? Because that's the reason we have asset holding companies and never touches our name. So those plaintiffs never get paid out. So even when you're investing in, you know, a joint venture deal or a passive investment, you should still never make those in your personal name either. Those should all be being made through your asset holding company into those third party deals as well. All right. So Scott, like, you know, maybe you take a step back from this whole single family home, which I think there's a lot of noise and I'm personally getting out of the single family home game and going more into the limited partner role and the syndications, which I think is far superior for more high net worth folks or people able to put away 30 grand or more into the bank at the end of the year. You know, so if you're going into a deal as a limited partner, what's your thoughts on needing the LLC or you know, any kind of asset protection for that? Well, you should be protected from the place of the deal itself getting sued and then them coming after you for being a limited partner because that's how LLCs work. It protects the members of the LLC from the conduct of the LLC itself. And that's what you are as a limited partner, a member, an equity member, right? The questions become around that as saying, is that it, what happens if I get sued in my personal life? 
and like say that you end up with a $20,000 judgment against you because of a car accident you got in or another business deal or something, right? When that your LP interest then distributes the money to you, that plaintiff who sued you can then seize that money. However, if you have your asset holding company make that investment into the third party deal, now your investment pays out to your asset holding company. Your asset holding company would then pay it out to you. But what you would do is say, well, I'm not going to have my asset holding company pay it out to me because once it gets paid out to me, they can seize it. So I'm going to hold it inside of that asset holding company. So that way it never gets paid out to them. And you accrue that as you know capital and you have to pay taxes on it. And there's some clever tax strategies that you would use around that and other ways to avoid the lawsuits that would happen those, you know, paying off those plaintiffs, you know, if that came up that, you, that are really particular, but the needless to say is that you'd actually need a buffer between an LLC buffer between you and the LP um, investment itself to right. be more, you know, ideally more for that outside in protection. And as opposed to if there's a, let's just say there's an oil drum buried underneath the apartment building for some strange reason. And it wasn't caught in the environmental phase one that gets, how does that liability get filtered to the general partners and then the, the LLC and insurance and, yeah, it really depends upon the, the case, right? But as an LP interest in that, um, you're almost always protected, you know, from being a limited partner. The only way to guarantee that you're protected, though, is, is to start making sure that you're making all of your investments through your own LLC to have that extra step removed from you and the world in every, in every scenario, right? Again, when you're talking about the types of numbers that we're looking at as investment investors, we typically always look at to say that your legal and tax costs should never exceed, you know, 4% per year of what your total investments would be, right? That should be about what your overhead is going to be. Most of the time, what I find is the majority of that actually goes to your yearly tax prep and a much smaller percentage goes to your legal because the legal setup costs are typically one-time costs that you, if you're thinking about this as an investor, you should be amortizing that over the next 25 years of your life. So they're almost nothing there, but they are painful up front, right? Because it's thousands of dollars up front to get going in that. But, but those are kind of like the numbers that I would look at to say to justify expenses into that. But you never want to be entering into anything directly. Like rich people don't do that. Like rich people don't own things. They have companies that own things. Rich people don't invest in things personally. They have companies that invest in things. And we have to start thinking like rich people if we're going to be rich people. Yeah. And I'll echo that, you know, from, from what I see from my mastermind group, you know, people are, you know, they start out, they're, they're going into syndication deals as a limited partner without that LLC. But as soon as they start investing real cash, like, 200, $300,000, $400,000 into deals. They're definitely using an LLC, just as extra layer Scott mentioned. So next question here, do defendants have to pay taxes for the judgments, even though they can't collect the distribution? I mean, that might matter from like state to state. I'm not entirely sure on like where, how that's going to play out. Most of the time, uh, income is only associated with you whenever you actually receive it, mm -hmm. not when it's owed to you, right? right? So a large insurance policy, like a $5 million umbrella, versus using equity structures in Nevada or Wyoming master LLCs. What's your opinion there? Oh, you'd want to use both. The reason people, this is a false debate actually about like which one you should use insurance or uh, asset holding companies. The reality is you need both and they cover you against different types of risk. And insurance policies like that, only like umbrella policies and liability policies only cover you against one type of claim called negligence. And they do a really good job to get rid of everything that's a nuisance type of issue. Once things start getting to be major problems, like there's a major claim against you, it really doesn't matter how big of a policy you have because it doesn't matter how big the policy is if they say that we're not going to cover it, right? 
Right. At the end of the day, the question you have to ask yourself in this is, do I want to have all of my safety and security placed into a third party, like an insurance company, that if they deny coverage, I'm screwed? Or would I like to have an extra line of defense in there that says, I want a company structure that says, even if the insurance company denies coverage and the skies fall with the major lawsuit, I still lose little to nothing. And that's the only, the only way you can get that is by having a company structure put in place. I'm very well insured personally, and I recommend that everybody else is as well. But I just don't choose to trust a third party whose economic incentives are to deny the coverage to protect me if there's something that major that happens that could be catastrophic to my well-being in my future. Right. It's all, it's all buried in those exclusions and those, those insurance policies. And I don't know, is that, yeah, is we that see it in, we see it on TV all the time, right? Major things happen. What do the insurance companies do? Blanketly deny coverage, right? That doesn't happen if it's just Bob because Bob doesn't make the TV. Bob just gets screwed. It's only when there's like tons of houses and stuff like that, that it actually makes the TV, but Bob gets screwed all the time, you know? And I know because I was on the side of that, it's suing the insurance companies on behalf of Bob, you know, because Bob got screwed by his insurance carrier. Right. Right. It's like going on bigger pockets and like so-and-so is using these people. I'm like, well, you're not so-and-so. Nobody cares about you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You're the one paying 100%. for all the marketing. Yeah. hundred percent. So people want to ask, um, you know, putting the personal mortgage into an LLC, what exactly is happening? Is there is a quick claim deed or what, what's the mechanism? Always warranty deed. Warranty. And you would never, you probably never want, you never want to do this directly transferring the property from your name into an LLC. You always want to transfer it into the land trust and have the land trust be owned by the LLC because then you wholly avoid the due on sale clause issue. So if there's changes in the market and all of a sudden banks want to reassess, you know, due on sale clause, right? Because maybe rates will spike or something like that. You're protected from all of that by transferring into a land trust and you don't have any banks hassling you, which can also be like a pain and unsettling in its own right. Um, and then the other piece of it too, is that you always want to transfer with a warranty deed or a deed with warranties attached with it because it's also how you preserve title insurance. Because title insurance with the transfer with warranties, the title insurance will still stay effective upon the subsequent transfer. If it's a quick claim deed, the title insurance actually gets voided. Maybe if you can explain a little bit about the charging order um, with the different states, how that's kind of been changing a little bit. Yeah, so that goes back to what I was talking about before of why it matters where you form the LLC, whether it's Texas, Nevada, Delaware or Wyoming is that has to do with the charging order because the charging order is what allows you to say, if I sue Lane, can I get to Lane's LLC? States like California will say, absolutely. You can sue Lane. You can take all of his LLCs. If it's a California LLC, you take all of his membership interest in it. Those four States that I mentioned before have charging orders protection saying that if I sue Lane, I can't take his ownership interest in the Texas LLC. And that's what we really are trying to accomplish with LLCs in general is by trying to say we're going to separate you from your assets and we're going to put them in LLC so they have um, completely separate protection. Um, the reason that I like to use states like Texas for the series LLC though it's because it's on par with the strongest in the country and it also has no annual fees in Texas, unlike the other states too. So it's a little bit cheaper, but you can form these up anywhere, right? And we sometimes, you know, people will have like a Delaware fetish or something. So we'll form them up in Delaware for them, but there's really no good reason to, to form them up there or in Nevada. Nevada's horrible, by the way. It's like $600 plus per year that people pay for that when they could just as easily have the same types of protections and have it cheaper just forming it up through Texas. Uh, thoughts on equity stripping for asset protection and how it kind of plays in with the, you know, the LLC arrangements and at what point does it make sense to do it? 
you do equity stripping whenever there's just, there's too much equity in, in one individual piece of property that makes you nervous. Now you're going to be spending about three to $4,000 to strip that equity, right? To be able to do it. And there's some complicated backend legal that you have to do to make sure that the equity stripping is actually going to be enforceable. So um, I have a lot of um, Chinese clients, for example, that are really big on equity stripping because they want to own everything cash, right? So that's usually who we run into that really want that type of uh, protection put in place. Um, it can work, right? Like home equity lines of credit are really good for disguising how much um, income is in there. But if you really want to protect it, you really need to either actually pull the money out through like a mortgage from the bank, or you need to establish your own mortgage company and have your own mortgage company put your own notes onto your own property. So that way, if you're ever sued, your own mortgage company gets paid out first before any plaintiff gets paid out. And, and that's how you're able to do the equity um, stripping, you know, game end of that. Yeah. Oh, so have, you, have you heard about Tulane? I just wanted to make sure to touch on this before because this is another big misconception I end up getting is about like how people use Wyoming LLCs to be able to create anonymity. Uh, have you heard of that before? No, no. No, because uh, that's like another way you can use like a Wyoming LLC for the structure that you just had to say, I'm going to have my Wyoming LLC own my Kentucky LLC, right? And when people look to say, well, who owns this Kentucky LLC that owns this piece of property? It points to Wyoming LLC. And in Wyoming, it doesn't actually disclose who actually owns the LLCs at all, right? So people create anonymity that way. And one thing I know your listeners are going to be super stoked to hear about is that you can actually create the same anonymity totally for free by just using a trust structure, just like we use for land trust. Right. Um, and you don't have to pay for any of that. But I just want to make sure to get that on, on the air here because that's one thing that I hear all the time of like, oh, I have to use all this complicated Wyoming LLC stuff. And absolutely not. You can avoid all of those expenses. Yeah, it's not really like true anonymity, right? It's kind of like how like in Texas, they certain parts of the real estate transaction is not disclosed in public. Not, not all the records are, and some people will kind of label that as anonymous, which is, it's not. Yeah. Well, with the way that we do it, it actually, it truly is because we have the trust structure that's established that will either own the piece of property or own the company with the trust. And then all, everything that's related to the company and to the trust gets channeled through me and through my law firm. And it's all protected by the attorney client privilege. So if people actually come looking for it, everything points back to me and then all of that's a stone wall from any type of information you can get after the fact. So people are using these, these S-Corps and kind of using family limited partnerships. How do, you, how do you throw that into the mix? S-Corporations are not any more protective for you than an LLC. It's really just a difference in how you want to take your taxes out. As I talked about before. Um, the LLC you know, taxes an S-Corp. LLC taxes S corp, or you can establish an S corp, but then you have to do all the extra formalities of all the time of maintaining the S corporation and all that. So it's actually easier to do an LLC and do a different tax selection for it. For family limited partnerships, those are fine. I mean, why not, right? LPs are just old. It's just an old way of doing things, right? Like limited partnerships is the way that people did stuff before LLCs were invented. And now we have LLCs here and they're kind of like the mainstream of what everybody's doing. Over the last 20 years, you've seen a push for series LLCs and now it's in you know, 12 plus states and more and more states now are getting legislation so you can establish them in the state. Remember, you can establish these in one state and use them everywhere just like you do normal LLCs because series LLCs just are LLCs with a caveat to them. And, uh, and people have been doing that and been in thousands of lawsuits. Nobody's ever really tried to, nobody's ever tried to challenge it. That's why there's no case law um, associated with them. So you'll see like the next, you know, main phase will be series LLCs being the norm uh, for everything because it's, it's already happening, right? So it's not even 
like cutting edge knowledge. It's you just have to be aware of it. So yeah, LPs are great, but you know, it's just the old way of doing it. All right. Anything else, um, you know, thought maybe the folks might want to know out there. Yeah, man. I mean, we have a lot of a cool information. I don't know if, uh, if, if we want me to clue in everybody of where they can get more info and all these topics for them. But I would just say that, you know, as a general point, um, you know, before we, I can let you guys know where all that comes. Uh, I'd really just encourage you to say that no matter where you're at inside of your investing, you know, time frame here, it's all, it's never too late if you're down the road to be able to correct course to do the right thing. And no matter how early you're getting started, I recommend um, that you start with your three to five year plan, like in line of where you see yourself going, right? And set yourself up with a foundation that can grow with you over time and form relationships with professionals that are, you know, CPAs and attorneys and deal makers. That's the three legs of the stool you need to be a successful investor that are in the same business you're and understand the same assets you're trying to invest in because those are the people that are going to be able to give you the absolute best advice um, because they've actually done it and been incentivized to do it. Not all professionals are made equal. You should only really try to hire people that are in making money the same way that you make money and also happen to have a legal credential or a tax credential or, you know, XYZ credential to perform a, a particular function for you. All right. You want to drop your URL for people to get a hold of you in case you have more questions, Scott? Uh, yeah. So uh, you want to go to uh, royallegalsolutions.com. Uh, That's where we're going to have tons of articles. We have like, I don't know, 2000 blog posts on all of this different types of stuff that we talked about here today and much more uh, depth of information on there. We're going to have royallegalsolutions.com slash simple passive cash flow. It's going to be able to take you to a page um, where we're going to have opt-in links for, you know, uh, free eBooks for you. We're also going to be doing a raffle of about uh, five to $10,000 in legal structures for you guys around series LLCs and whatnot. I mean, bona fide actual legal structures that we would charge people five to $10,000 to put up. We're going to give those away for, to the listener base for free for everybody that enters in is able to uh, take advantage of having that opportunity of, of doing that. Um, yeah, there, I mean, we're giving away all kinds of stuff in there too for you guys. So, or you can give us a call at 512-757-3994 or email me at scott, S-C-O-T-T at royallegalsolutions.com. All right, Scott. Well, thanks for coming on, man. Appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks, Lane. Hey. Appreciate it. This website offers very general information concerning real estate for investment purposes. Every investor situation is unique. Always seek the services of licensed third-party appraisers and inspectors to verify the value and condition of any property you intend to purchase. Use the services of professional title and escrow companies and licensed tax, investment, and or legal advisor before relying on any information contained herein. Information is not guaranteed as in every investment there is risk. The content found here is just my opinion and things change and I reserve the right to change my mind. Above all else, do your own analysis and think for yourself because in the end, you are the only person who is going to look out for your best interests.